Last Sunday, we looked at verses 13 through 25, the very last part of chapter 1 of the book of 1 Peter, Peter's first letter. In these verses, Peter tells us that because we have such a great salvation that's promised to us, a salvation that's absolutely sure and certain, but one which we haven't actually received yet, that we should focus all of our hope, all of our mental energy here on earth on just one thing. The day that the heavens are split open and Christ himself descends and we see him face to face. That thought is the only answer to the trials of this world. And it is indeed the answer to every trial of this world. There is no other answer that can satisfy. Think about these two questions. One, what is the greatest pain, physical or emotional, that you've ever experienced in life? Also, what is the greatest pain or difficulty that you're struggling with right now? What questions do we ask about trials like these? like the trials of the worst pains that we go through in life. We ask, why God? What, why did this have to happen? Sometimes we ask, why is this happening right now? And secondly, we ask, how long, Lord? When is this going to end? What is ever going to make this any better? And there is ultimately no answer to that question that can be deeply and finally satisfying, except Jesus will come. And when he comes, he will make it better. And not only that, but he will bless me far beyond all of the pain that I experienced in that trial. The book of Joel, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, is about a terrible plague of locusts that God was going to allow to come upon the people of Israel. But afterwards, he said, after the locusts had come and stripped the land bare, he said that he would restore them, and not only restore them, but he would restore to them everything that they had lost during the plague. In verse 23, he says, Be glad then, you children of Zion, and rejoice in Yahweh your God, for he gives you the early rain in just measure, and he causes the rain to come down for you, the early rain and the latter rain as before. The threshing floors will be full of wheat, and the vats will overflow with new wine and oil. I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten, the great locust, the grasshopper, and the caterpillar, my great army, which I sent among you. You will have plenty to eat and be satisfied and will praise the name of Yahweh your God, who has dealt wondrously with you, and my people will never again be disappointed. So the coming of Christ and the great reward that he'll bring for us is our peace in every situation. It reminds us that he will restore to us the pain, the suffering, the trials that we have gone through in this life. Not only will he eliminate those sufferings, but he will repay us for the sufferings that we endured. It's even our comfort when we lose when we lose loved ones in death 
Paul wrote this to the Thessalonian church. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. He writes, But we don't want you to be ignorant, brothers, concerning those who have fallen asleep, so that you don't grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. For this we tell you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will in no way precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with God's trumpet, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. So we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. He told them to comfort one another by thinking about the coming of Christ and the great restoration it will bring. So Peter tells us that in light of this great truth, we need to do two things. He says that we need to prepare our minds for action. This is by focusing our hope on the coming of Christ. And we need to live lives that reflect this truth. Last week, we mostly talked about number one. Today, we're going to talk about what it means to live lives that reflect the truth that all of our hope is in the coming of Christ. In verses 14 and 15, Peter writes, As children of obedience, not conforming yourselves according to your former lusts, as in your ignorance, but just as he who called you is holy, you yourselves also be holy in all of your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. You shall be holy, for I am holy. Am holy. These were words that God spoke to the Israelites back in the Old Testament, back in Leviticus chapter 11. And oddly enough, it was in a section where God had just delivered a chapter full of regulations about animals, about which animals they could eat, which ones they couldn't. There was a collection of animals that they could neither eat nor touch the carcass of. These included animals that crawled along the ground like snakes, seafood that doesn't have scales like shellfish, animals that don't chew their cud, birds of prey like hawks and eagles, and so on. And at the end of this long list of animals, he tells the people in verse 44, I am the Lord your God consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. The word there in Hebrew is kadosh, and it means just exactly what the English word means, holy. But we don't run around using that word holy a lot outside of church, so we lose over time a little bit of the sense of what that means. Holy means, uh, it, it has that idea of goodness, perfect goodness, but it also has the idea of being set apart for a special purpose, especially to be set apart from the sinful things of this world. For example, when God called the Israelites to be a nation, he said to them in Deuteronomy 14, For you 
are a people holy to the Lord your God, and the Lord has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. So God separated the Israelites from all the other nations with the purpose that his glory would shine through them to all the nations. When they built the temple, they made several utensils to serve in the temple. These are things to handle the, the, the food sacrifices. And these utensils were only to be used for this purpose, not for anything else. They were set apart. When King Ahaz threw them out, but when he shut up the temple, his son, Hezekiah, later became king, and he reestablished the temple worship. The priests not only had to remake the utensils, they had to consecrate them. They had to specially set them aside to be used for holy things and only for holy things. After they'd finished doing it, the priests reported back to Hezekiah in Second Chronicles 29. They said, it says, Then they went in to Hezekiah the king and said, We have cleansed all the house of the Lord, the altar of burnt offering and all its utensils, and the table for the showbread and all its utensils. All the utensils that King Ahaz discarded in his reign when he was faithless, we have made ready and consecrated, and behold, they are before the altar of the Lord." But it's not just nations, it's not just utensils in the temple that God sets apart for holy purposes. He sets aside individual people for particular tasks, too. When God spoke to the prophet Jeremiah when he was still young, he told him, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. The first church where people were called Christians was the church in Antioch. And while the church was there going about its business, worshiping, praying, the Holy Spirit called two people to leave on a mission trip. It says in Acts 13 too, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Paul says that you Two, have been set apart by God for a special purpose. In 2 Timothy, he writes, Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. He uses the utensils of the temple as an analogy. He says, you're like those utensils. You're set aside by God for holy work and only for holy work. And he's cleansed you for those purposes. Do you believe that? That God has a special purpose for you? A specific purpose for your life that is more important than just your job or the things that you do? Paul wrote in Ephesians 2.10, For we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So the heart of Peter's message here in chapter 1 is, We've been given a great salvation, though we haven't yet received it in fact. So we set our hope on that great day when we do receive it. 
and then we live like people who have been set apart for God, set apart from sin, and set apart for righteousness. And in verses 22 and 23, he begins to flesh out what this holy, set-apart life looks like. He writes, Seeing you have purified your souls in your obedience to the truth, through the Spirit, in sincere brotherly affection, love one another from the heart fervently. So Peter begins the explanation of the holy, set-apart life right where it needs to begin, with Christians loving one another. The Bible says a multitude of times and a multitude of places that we're to love one another. For example, Jesus himself says in John 13, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. The Apostle John wrote in his letter, For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, we should love one another. He says it so many times. Maybe God thinks that this is important for us, that we should love one another. Why? Why is it important to love one another? Well, for one thing, it's an example to the world that makes them want to know Christ. You see, Christian life is a life of togetherness. As Christians, we live life together, first and foremost with God, but we also live together with one another, engaging in a life together of fervent love of our brothers and sisters in Christ is one of the most important components of evangelism because it shows the world what we're inviting them into, not just redemption from hell, but a community that provides identity and forgiveness and mercy and love, something the world simply cannot do. So we love each other because it makes people want Christ. For another thing, the Bible says that the church is the body of Christ. In some ways, Christ's body is tangible and physical. Christ is physically sitting at the right hand of God in heaven. But he also said that spiritually speaking, the body of Christ is right here on earth, and it's composed of the church, all of the believers in Christ. And what does a body do? A body has hands and feet that do the will of the mind. And what is the mind? The mind is the head of the church, which is Christ. So the body of Christ is intended to do the things that Christ does here on earth. And what does he do? He loves. Who has loved more than Christ loved? It says that greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. That's what Jesus did, and that's what he does still and that's what he intends for you, the church, to do. There are some things that communicate an image to the human mind that aren't exactly an image in reality. For example, sometimes the brain produces an image from seeing lots and lots of data points. Like when we watch television. 
uh, uh, television broadcasts, not moving pictures. A TV doesn't show movement. Instead, what a TV does is show 24 still pictures per second. And our brains take those still pictures, each of which is slightly different than the one before, and our brains stitch them together into the illusion of motion. The same is true of your computer screen, the same thing with your phone. They don't ever show motion, even though you see motion. They just show a really fast series of pictures. And your brain takes all these individual data points together and receives the vision of motion. When, in the church, the church is working the way that it should, and the church, the members of the church, are loving one another in the ways that God has modeled for us in Christ Jesus. We start to see Susie over there praying for someone who's hurt her feelings. And we see Mark over here helping someone who's poor that doesn't have food for their family. And we see Robert over there helping someone fix their home. We see someone else teaching the gospel. We see someone else visiting the elderly. We see all of these data points like lights flashing on and off, on and off. And when the whole church is living the kind of holy life that Peter is talking about here, an image starts to form in those flashing lights, and that image is Christ. And so, it's not only the work of evangelism to reveal Christ to the world by doing Christ's works in this way, and by loving one another in this way, it's also to our joy and our great honor to be able to see Christ. That's why we love one another. And that's why we place such a high priority on fellowship and mutual submission and valuing others more than ourselves. That's why we work so hard to have godly ways to resolve conflicts. Not that conflicts should never occur, but that we have godly ways to resolve them. Ways that involve not trying to satisfy ourselves, but to bring reconciliation, to bring healing, never to hold on to grudges for our own sake. Paul writes about this life of brotherly and sisterly love to the Colossians. He writes, Therefore, as God's chosen people, there it is, chosen, set apart, he says, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. You notice that Paul doesn't say, let there never be any grievances. He says, if you do have a grievance, someone has legitimately harmed you, hurt you, slighted you, neglected you. He says to forgive them, not because they deserve it, but because you didn't deserve it either when Jesus forgave you. How are you doing with that? Take a minute. Is there anyone in the church that you're holding a grudge against? Grudges are absolutely 
out of character for this new creation that God has created you to be. Grudges belong to our old nature, which Peter called in our ignorance. So we Christians have two things that we're allowed to do with grudges. The first is, if it rises to such a level or is still an ongoing thing that it needs to be dealt with, we go to that person and we gracefully tell them and we try to reconcile. We don't go talking to other people about it. We don't go taking a quiet poll to see if other people agree with us. We don't ask someone else to go on our behalf. If it's that important, we go and talk to the person directly. Our second option, and honestly, this is usually the best one. It's not always, but it's usually the best one. Is to just let it go. To forgive the person. To chalk it up to the fact that we are all sinners. And God has forgiven me a lot so I can pass that grace along. But hanging on to it, stewing in it, and bringing it up later in arguments is never an option for Christians. This business of loving one another and removing hindrances to our mutual love is a deadly serious business. We could fill days talking about churches that have died because of grudges and unresolved conflicts. But even more important than local churches splitting there are unbelievers who are watching the church to see how people relate to each other. They're either going to see people behaving exactly the same as people outside the church, and they will want no part in the church or in the Savior. Or they will see a community of imperfect people, of sinners who bump up against one another, and who step on toes and hurt feelings, who nevertheless forgive and love one another. That is a community that they will want to be a part of, and it will reveal a savior that they will want for themselves. So, when someone has hurt us, our joy comes not from the satisfaction of being better than them, or from tearing them down and destroying them, our satisfaction, our joy comes from being able to extend the same forgiveness that we've received from God so that that person is restored, so that our relationship is restored. God is in the business of restoration. He is restoring an entire cosmos. And that's another part of what it means to be the body of Christ, to be engaged in that work of restoration. If you have never received Christ by faith, if you've never made a decision that you want to follow him, that you want his forgiveness, that you want him to take away your sins, that is what he's speaking to you today, that he wants you to be reconciled to himself. He wants you to enjoy that mutual love that we've been talking about between brother and sister Christians today. We do that by making a decision to receive Jesus by faith. If you believe that you have sinned, that you have done things that separate you from God, and you believe that Jesus, God's only son, came to earth and died on the cross to pay the price for your sins, and that on the third day he rose from the dead, you can choose to receive him as your savior by faith. You can make a decision that you do not want any longer to live the life of sin, 
that you used to live, but you want God to forgive you, to take away those sins and restore you to fellowship with him so that you can follow him so that you can be adopted as a son or daughter of God. And if you are a Christian, God's saying to you that he wants you to be part of that ministry of restoration and reconciliation. God is bringing all things under himself. And when we love one another with a pure heart, with forgiveness, without holding back, without grudges, we are shining that light of God's mercy and grace into the world, and the world will want to be a part of that. We can preach the gospel till we're blue in the face, and we should, we must. But if we contradict the gospel by the way we live our lives with one another, no one will want to be a part of that. But conversely, if we do, the world will see Christ and want to be one with him.